This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman. This is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 226, brought to you in association with Smart and ListBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by David Genn, CEO of Goji, the leading provider in the UK of platform technology for private investments, to talk about how to trade sell yourself, or perhaps not yourself, but your company. Goji were on the podcast back in the day when founder Jake Winwell Povey joined us to talk about plans for UK innovative finance ISA, aka IF ISA. I wonder what happened to that. Anyway, it's clearly a long story from those days to today in many ways, but in Goji's case, they are in the final stages of trade selling themselves. And as trade sale is an, an eternally important realisation route, and perhaps even more important at the moment in the current economic circumstances, I thought it might be useful to speak to someone who's been through that process as we've covered IPOing before. So, Rara Arvis, a short and succinct-ish intro. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, David. Thank you for joining me on the show today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And you say it's great to be here, but I perhaps should fess up to the audience that uh, you've already suffered more than, more than anyone in the audience in that you've had to listen to the introduction twice, as when I pressed the button the first time to record, it didn't actually do it. So fortunately, my large capital letter saying check recording is playing, and for the second time in nine years, proved useful. And in terms of me being incompetent and moaning and all these kind of things, we were talking about knees, or rather I was talking about knees, having done my knee in and actually managed to get runner's knee literally without running anywhere, which is quite an achievement um, and one I'm not entirely proud of. And then you were telling me that not only do you run, but I'd mentioned that I'd heard from Ivan Gowan today, the CEO of Capital.com, who was on the podcast back in the day and who were brand partners, uh, literally today. But then it turns out you know him as well. And he, he triathlons all over the place, but you ultra marathon or something like that. Yeah, we used to work together at IG and with talk quite a lot about running and training and the best way to get fit so yeah I, I love to run particularly long distances what's long for you long for me would be sort of 100 meters <laughs> well I'd, anything over marathon distance but I think the what I've found is that as my kids have got older I made the mistake of introducing them to running and so I now spend far too much time watching them run rather than running myself so I'm one of these grumpy parents who stands on the sideline feeling upset that I'm not the one running anymore and it's it's them it's certainly a rite of passage as a parent when your kid actually beats you at stuff. Like if you're a great tennis player and then your, your kid at 17 sort of knocks you all over the court, you, yeah. de- you definitely feel the sort of passage of time. So in terms of looking after knees and things, I recorded last week with uh, Target Global and Rick there was doing his first um, triathlon. And I think off the podcast at the end, I, I, told, I said to him, make sure you don't injure yourself because it's all very well getting aerobic fitness and cardiovascular and leg stuff and all that. But if you'd done your knee in the way that I've done my knee in, you'd have two or three weeks off, and that would really sort of ruin any schedule for yeah. training programmes. So how do you cope with injuries, or perhaps even more importantly, uh, not just for me but other members of the audience out there, how do you avoid injuries in the first place? Because the best thing to fix an injury is not to get it in the first place. Yeah, I think, that, I think the, the problem with running is a lot of people think, well, I can walk, therefore I should be able to run. But running is actually like, like any other sport, and you need to learn to do it well. And I think um, and you need to build it up slowly. 
So they did, uh, I think the NHS launched that Couch to 5K app, which many people have done. It's been really popular. And what's really good about that is it just builds it up really slowly, really gently. And I think if you can, you know, if you combine that with learning some good running technique and doing some good strength exercises and uh, not overdoing it and just building up your distances slowly over time, then that's, that's the, best, the best route for me. Yes, Bridget did that um, 0 to 5K. When she was at school, she was a, a sprinter, so she was never a long-distance runner. But at slightly older than the school age, she did do her first 5K, so it, it was a good programme. Although in her case, she tried it once or twice, and it was only when she had the neighbour to chat to the whole way around, I don't know how they did all the running and, and chatting, <laughs> that they actually succeeded with this sort of the uh, social company. So when's your next big event? Well, I don't have any more, anything booked in at the moment. because you running across Siberia? Or yeah, well, I'd love to. So I did run 100 miles last year with with anthony our finance director Blimey. that is a long way actually it was um so that's from that was from richmond to oxford along the the thames path it was absolutely beautiful and uh yeah so that was that was last year so what's it like to be ultra fit or you don't know because you've always been ultra fit and therefore it's just quite normal it's something i got into seriously in my 30s i was never particularly sporty younger than that and it's uh but um yeah i just absolutely love it absolutely love it brilliant yes well I was reflecting recently, I met a man, to cut a long story short, who's founded 12 biotech companies. <laughs> but he doesn't have time for running. No, he doesn't, but along with doing many other things on the side, and I was reflecting that one of the, um, the best things about doing the podcast over the years is being, meeting awesome individuals. The downside of which, of course, is that my sort of, the fact that when I was seven, I got 25 years breaststroke certificate, and that was the peak of any achievements I ever had, means that... Uh, Throws your life into sharp perspective. Yeah. Exactly, that's right. With my ego firmly yeah. in, in, in place, sort of curled up in the corner, sucking its thumb. So in terms of career journeys, how did you sort of get here today? So I read chemistry at university and um, ended up working for an IT consultancy because uh, I'd, I'd, sort of, I'd thought about doing academic research, but it just, it, I just met a lot of people who had worked very hard and it, it, it had not been fruitful. So I, I fancied working in, in a commercial environment where if you put in the hard work, the success is a bit more guaranteed. And so I joined a, a technology consultancy working in financial services, and they, they taught me to code as part of the graduate program and uh, absolutely loved it. So ended up specialising as a software engineer after a few years, moved to IG where I worked with the van. And then having been there, really, I'd always wanted to, to work in a startup. So uh, I advertised for this position in this new, new startup, Goji, and ended up being employee number one. Are you over there from Jake with the bit right at the beginning? Yeah, right wow. from the start. It was me, me and Jake in a WeWork office. I think that must have been the WeWork office I interviewed him in. Probably the one at Moorgate. Mm, yeah, right. yeah. So I'd have been in an office actually doing the hard work whilst, whilst Jake was... Taking all Talking the glory. to you. And now, and now look at me. So I joined Goji to build a technology platform, which was, as an engineer, an amazing opportunity to, to build technology from scratch. And then sort of I, I took over as CTO. And as we focused more and more on the technology side and selling technology to asset managers, I took over as CEO. And presumably with that kind of shift from CTO of a company to CEO of a company which is quite tech-led... It's not such a huge shift as it might be if you were CTO of some business which was, I don't know, for the sake of argument, very businessy and had all sorts of dimensions that you had no experience in. So was it a, a big change or just a small change? I think the thing I've always loved is being able to talk with customers 
I've never, I was never a software engineer that wanted to... Play with your computer all day. Yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed the chance to present, the chance to, to sell and talk to customers. And so it was, it, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the transition because you just very much, you, you, you spend your life talking with customers, understanding their needs, understanding how you can solve their problems. And at the end of the day, that's what businesses are for. Yes, and I'm sure you made the right decision in terms of academia versus the commercial world. I was recently... I happened to be talking to a number of PhD students or just finished PhD students. And the one thing that shocked me about their narrative was that, I mean, back in the day, PhD was supposed to take three years. And I was hearing from them, and what do I know? So I was taking what they say as the the case that, oh, no, 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 these days, really, to get into the PhD and do properly, you need to spend six or seven years. I was utterly shocked because you'd starve to death. death. I mean, I'm slightly being metaphorical there, but not a lot in that... uh, my daughters have got friends who are doing PhDs, and if you're doing a PhD in London, you know, you're sharing a room with sort of 15 other people and you know, sharing a slice of toast each because the cost of living is, makes it tough to live in London regardless of what you're doing these days, let alone if you're doing a PhD. So I found that uh, quite a shocking thing, and not least of which because if you want to be an academic, then doing the PhD is merely sort of... You step know, one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the table money. Yeah. It's like you're allowed yeah. to walk in the casino now, yeah. but you haven't even started the, the casino. Yes, quite shocking. Okay, so maybe just tell us a, a little bit, because we'll hear more about Goji later and, and, and the products you're doing and, and, and the journey that you've, you've been on. But I mentioned in the introduction, in a sort of slightly cryptic fashion, that you're most of the way through trade selling yourself. In the moment, we'll sort of break that down into what, what you do to look hot in the first place, how you attract interest, how you go about dating and mating, and then all the various steps in that. But before we get into sort of drilling down into the different phases of the project, perhaps, maybe you'd just like to give listeners a bit of an, an idea about where you guys are and, and so, you know, how much of it you've experienced yourselves. Sure. So a very brief background to Goji and, and what we do. Our mission is to increase access to, to private markets. And for the, for the listener who doesn't quite know, or might be in a different part of the world, the phrase private market over here means precisely? So a private, private markets are things like private equity, venture capital, real estate. So they're typically investments that you, you can't log on to a, a standard investment platform like Hargreaves Lansdowne and, and access. So they're, they're typically a bit more alternative and historically have mainly been invested in by large institutions like pension funds. But increasingly, individual investors, more day-to-day investors, want to be able to access these kinds of investments. And so you really need technology to, to connect investors to, to the funds. And just out of curiosity, what did happen to the IF ISA? So the IF ISA is still going. Is it? Did yeah. it ever attract much money at all? Yeah, it's been pretty successful. And we still, our, our platform technology still powers uh, the IF ISA for a, a large number of platforms in the UK. So it's, uh, it certainly did its job in terms of making it tax efficient for people to invest into peer-to-peer lending. I was a bit surprised because uh, as most peer-to-peers have disappeared along the way or turned into banks and yeah. Zopa, and funding circle floated, I, I, I couldn't off the top of my head um, name the extensive uh, choice of in- investments you have and also in terms of innovative finance as I've covered non-stop for nine years there's all sorts of innovative finance beyond peer-to-peer yeah. perhaps most of it is beyond peer-to-peer these days. I, I don't know whether it means that using an IFISA you could, for example, I'd buy a payments company or an open banking company. So it's only on the debt side, the IFI. So it's just for investing into things like, it's not limited just to peer-to-peer, but it's, it's only investments that are ultimately lending money to, to other companies or individuals. 
So in terms of your process, before we dive into what the process is per se, how far are Goji through the current process? So Euroclear announced their intention to acquire us at the, the end of last year, um, and that's now subject to regulatory approval, which means that the, the FCA need to review the transaction. Okay, right, so that's the context, so you're almost there. So going back to the beginning, what kind of motivations do people have for realisations? I mean, um, the founder might want to get some money out, or they may need to raise capital and you can no longer keep raising it from VCs, or your VC might want a realisation. I think there are many motivations. And, yeah. Um, off the top of my head, the two main conduits are IPO, trade sale, and possibly private equity, but I don't know how many fintechs have done that. So maybe you'd like to give us a sort of a guide to what it is that makes you wake up one morning and think, oh, I think I'll might trade sale the business today? Yeah, so I think I mean, IPOs have had a lot of attention over the last few years. And I think one of, the, one of the statistics is very interesting is that the gap between companies that are publicly listed versus private companies is increasing. And especially if you look at the US market and their representative of the rest of the world, there are far more companies that remain private than those that list. And that's a trend that's only increasing which is interesting for investors, but I think it's obviously in this context particularly interesting for, um, for founders as they're thinking about what their exit options are. And, and so if you, if you take IPOs off the table, then that really does lead trade sale or, or private equity as two of the, kind of the, mo the most common routes. I think private equity are getting a lot better at working with smaller companies than say their, their traditional wheelhouse, and a lot of them have funds that can target smaller businesses and they have a, a phenomenal amount of expertise to, to bring to helping companies grow. But I think what's, what's interesting about a trade sale or being, a, being acquired by an incumbent is that they're typically already operating in the industry that, that you're in. And so there are, there are synergies you can take advantage of there that you wouldn't get and in, in, potentially get in, in, a, in a private equity sale. Yes, and in a private equity firm, you get the money uh, and I remember, well, the guest's name escapes me, the chap who was on, who had been a VC and he'd been a PE and he was now a founder. So he'd seen it from all around the spectrum. And the one thing that stuck in my mind was something along the lines that when I asked him, OK, what's the essential difference in terms of working in, as the CEO down these routes? The essential difference was that in terms of private equity, if you're owned by private equity, you're the gardener. They don't like the way you mow the lawn. Okay, out. <laughs> We've got a new guy coming in today. See you later kind of thing. Of course, that's a very different dynamic when you're engaging with an incumbent because it depends obviously on the nature of the business. But in many cases, the incumbent doesn't just, as it were, want the volumes because the incumbent's very big and he's got them. But actually, it also wants a group of good people who have achieved stuff and can achieve more in that direction going forward. So before we get on to the, the process, in terms of aligning visions... How do you think that sort of works in your experience? I don't think that is a key difference because in private equity, it, the thesis is very much if they acquire you and inject their capital and expertise, can they in increase your EBITDA phenomenally over a five-year period and then benefit from that. Whereas in a, in a trade sale, they will obviously be, be looking at the bottom line, but there's typically a, a strategic angle that they are pursuing that is unique to them unique to their industry and unique to what you, you can bring as the target company. And I think, like you say, that, that whole strategic vision has to be something that, that both parties really believe in and are, are really lined up on. And that, and that was certainly the case for us in Euroclear. They operate 
one of the world's leading fund post-trade networks, but they don't support private funds at the moment. And so adding our technology and capabilities give them really helps them achieve a key strategic uh, angle. And I think you have to be really lined up on what is the thesis behind this acquisition that makes it worth doing. Yes, I see. That's an interesting way of putting it. And it's also kind of oppositely, you've got the private equity we've touched on, but also the IPO, where if you're doing an IPO, you, you go to the market and you persuade people you're worth X pounds uh, and, and they just sort of put the money in and, the, and the, um, the business goes on. But in this case, you say strategic alignment and it's quite synchronicitous in that off the top of my head, I think the last podcast I recorded was with EcoSpend, who have completed their trade sale to Trustly. Uh, Trustly's open banking provider and EcoSpend certainly once they'd acquired the inland revenues pay-as-you-earn payments, well, literally quite a few, were able to provide Trustly, not just with a footprint in the UK, which Trustly didn't really have, but a huge footprint in the UK. Yeah. So again, that ties into needing to see things from the incumbent's perspective or the people who are buying you in terms of what they'd like to do. So let's just let's not use that as an example because I, don't, I can't remember the precise details, but let's say I'm a Swedish, I don't know, peer-to-peer and I, I, want a, I want a footprint in the UK. Well, I can take my brand over there and I can hire people one by one and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or I can go along and, and buy a peer-to-peer and, well, okay, now I've got it. <laughs> yeah, and you've got the licence and the staff and the local expertise. and Yes. So, okay, so the first thing um, that I take away is a very interesting one and I like the way you framed it, which is almost one needs to think about it from the other person's perspective more. So from that perspective, using my favourite sort of dating, mating, engaging, slash getting married kind of breakdown of the process, how do you go about finding a supply of potential mates? I mean, if you were going to flog yourself to a private equity company, there'd be, I don't know, save the sake of argument, a dozen, maybe not, be a dozen people working in your sector and you go knock on their front door and you say, oh, hello, can I have a meeting and do you want to buy us for a huge fortune? And, and, and so that's, it seems to me a fairly defined thing, but maybe it's something about knowing your industry. But yes, if I was going to sort of trade, sell the London FinTech podcast tomorrow, I'd sort of sit there and scratch my head and think, which silly side would want to buy this? Oh, no, sorry, which <laughs> fortunate <laughs> partner really wants to make strategic acquisition in a major yeah. area of growth? I think there's, there's probably a few different paths that you could take. One would be that it, it grows naturally out of a commercial relationship. So you might have sold your service to a, um, a large incumbent in the space and then over time they get to, they get to see the quality of your service and, and really see it as a, um, uh, you know, something they want a, a more strategic stake in and that leads to an acquisition uh, discussion. And I think particularly you can, you can see banks that do that where they kind of dip their toe in by they might make a, a minority investment and a commercial relationship and then over time that that grows into an acquisition. So there's that, I guess there's less of a strict process there where that's something that, that grows more organically over time. And that would be akin to, sticking with the metaphor, you know, sitting next to somebody at work yeah. who you've known for a couple of years. Yeah. And then one day you go for a drink of wine or two drinks of wine. And, and it becomes something else. A bit, yeah. bit of mating and a bit yeah. of dating and then you end up marrying them. And from that perspective, because you've known each other well in the first, I mean, I'm sure it's companies where that sort of thing's illegal or something. Yeah. Everything's illegal these days. But uh, from that perspective, both parties know each other quite well. Yeah. And so it's not a question of, uh, of going and knocking on a door of a private equity firm that you've never heard of and they've never heard of you saying, hello, you know, my name is David, my company is called Goji. You know, and what's your name again? I've forgotten which one I'm at talking to today. And yeah. you go through that sort of cold stuff. So, so you've got the, the warm entrance via commercial relationship 
or customer relationship or presumably strategic in, in yeah. investment. Was that the route that you went down? Is that how you knew we were at no, that wasn't the, the, the route that we particularly took. We didn't have a, a commercial relationship ahead of the discussions. Okay, so either you kind of, um, metaphorically speaking, you start dating and mating somebody who you know already, you see them differently one, one day, or it's just a natural progress of the, the, the relationship in a more c commercial framework. But if you don't like the boy slash girl sit next to you at work, and you think, actually, I quite like to sort of get on with the mating, dating, and, and marrying, and all these kind of things, then you have to, well, I guess for the personal perspective, get an app yes, and swipe yeah. left and swipe right. So I don't know what um, growing up companies do. Is there an app where you can sort of swipe left, swipe right on potential trade partners? I suppose the, the equivalent of the app would be an investment bank or some other yeah, advisor. That that's what I was thinking of, actually. A marriage broker, which I'm is sure what the average does. investment bank would not like to be compared to a, a dating app. But No, I think dating apps generally do a better job. <laughs> You know, so there are obviously investment banks and other consultancies that make their living from you know, brokering these kinds of deals. And they often specialise in a particular sector and are maybe acting on behalf of the incumbent or they could be acting on behalf of the, the startup or they might just be just in the space in general and just trying to kind of curate deals. That can certainly be a route. But I, I think what's, what's quite interesting is that more and more incumbents have dedicated M&A teams that are scouring the market themselves and are building their own expertise and they have their own M&A strategies to help them achieve whatever particular business goals they have. And so I think increasingly startups should expect at some point in their growth to be approached by one or more incumbents and say, you know, we're thinking about an acquisition in the space. Does that make sense for you? Oh, that's interesting. So again, sticking with the sort of the, the basic metaphor, I think you can go around and try and chat up people and, and see where it goes, having come up with some shortlist uh, of them, which would be the case in the private equity firms where you're approaching them. Or you yeah, might be minding your business in a bar and someone comes up to you. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. but this is an audio po podcast, obviously. So I wouldn't want uh, listeners to imagine you in a, in a red dress, or rather it wouldn't actually matter because... Um, <laughs> but you do have a beard and you would look a bit strange in a red dress, although it's probably quite normal these days. I think I'd look amazing in a red dress. I'm sure, yes, right. Well, that's another podcast. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll do my after hours uh, podcast uh, later. But you look hot enough as a company. You have a high enough profile. You attract attention. People see you. And then in a space that's kind of consolidating or, as you say, there's capacity needed that argues lands down. If I can have a portfolio there, I can't invest in a whole bunch of stuff I might want to invest in. And then businesses like that are thinking... Crikey, we're missing out on something here. Yeah. You know, we really need to get ahead of, I don't know, Interactive Investor, for example. If we grow this organically, by the time we've got our shit together and everything else, it'll take us a bloody five years. Yeah. Ah, okay, who's in the market? Oh, well, I saw Goji. I saw David wearing a red dress, and it's stuck in my mind at a conference. So, so there's, you're, you're, you're trying to source it yourself. There's also, you go via an intermediary. You mentioned investment banks, but I was hearing an example recently where the Big four accountants get involved in these things. They, mm -hmm. they do in many sectors. I also heard that, as you might imagine, managing such relationships is a challenge in itself because your broker, especially big fours and consultants, quite like being paid by the hour. And it's amazing how much they can find to do before they actually start introducing you to people. Like, I think you should get a haircut. I think you should get fitter. I think you should get a new kid. And, or uh, metaphorically speaking, or non-metaphorically speaking, well, I think we need more information on this and we need more due diligence and da 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 So 
kind of an accountant's mentality is dot I, every I and cross every T before you even start, as opposed to having a few big picture conversations first. So that's a challenge as well, using the intermediary. Or the one which is, you know, you're such a hot property, people sort of come up to you and you chat you up all the time and you, you know, you turn 99 frogs down and then, you, you know, you go with the 100th who's a prince. I think probably, I mean, the question you, you always get asked in seed round or series A round investing is what's your exit strategy? Cross fingers, <laughs> if it works out. I think the, probably the, the point there is that if, if you do just say that, that cross fingers approach, then you are kind of at the mercy of the markets. Whereas in the same way as if you, you, you would have a well-developed commercial strategy with, with how you would build a, a pipeline for commercial sales, it's probably very sensible for CEOs and the board to be thinking you know, several years ahead of an exit, who were the kind of strategics that would make sense and what, what am I doing to, to network with the relevant stakeholders so that you have those relationships many months if not years before you need to say, you know, you need to have a more frank conversation about a potential exit. Yes, and of course, if I was wearing a sort of suit and tie, as it were, I wouldn't say cross the fingers and the hope. I, I would say that we have multiple options, and it's going to be rather organic, depending on how yeah. the market develops and you know the economic circumstances and, and blah, blah, blah. But it was kind of, let's see. But in particular, what I like from what you're saying, which is that it's almost a bit of a duty of the board after a period of time to be far-seeing and looking over the next hill and the next yeah. hill and giving this some thought up front. And I recently quoted again which VC I've forgotten it was, but a guest on the show who'd said that VCs don't like investing in dots. They like investing in a series of dots which yep. make a line. You go and see a VC you've never met before and say, can I have some money, please? Well, good luck. Maybe you'll get it. But you're more likely to get it if you've knocked on their door and seen them every six months the last three years. Yes, and shown progression. And shown progression and, and shown how you cope with sort of setbacks or unexpected successes and that you have some grip and that your forecasts have been in line. So that's interesting. So in your case at Goju, then, did the board sort of sit down three years ago and, and, and discuss the sort of plans and options, or was it something that was more organic? It, it was actually more organic. Because, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> like, well, as you, you mentioned around um, the, the peer-to-peer space, when the IFI was launched, there was huge promise for that sector. That's, there's obviously been a whole range of reasons why that sector has, has not grown as much as it might do, and so which was one of the reasons why we took our technology to serve the more generic private market space and focusing on larger incumbent asset managers. And I think as, we, as that strategy developed, the range of strategic options for, for this kind of acquisition just grew massively. And so it, it was more organic, but I think it did, we did reach a point where for us to really be able to accelerate our growth, achieve the, the outcome that we wanted for our investors, this route just made complete sense. Excellent. So one of the um, important things in, in terms of what I was saying metaphorically before about getting one's hair cut, changing one's clothes and getting a bit fitter and looking good is the due diligence. And we've got a whole episode diving into due diligence in general. And there are firms that can help you with that process. But in terms of, as you mentioned before, we live in a world of, in Sir Paul Tucker's phrase, unelected power. And for most of human history in this country, if you reached a commercial agreement, to do something with another company, good luck to you. (laughs) Who am I or anybody else to say anything about it? But these days we've got these people called regulators, as Crowdcube and Cedars found. They were all lined up, and I can't can't even remember whether they were co-located in buildings or something like that, but they got the new organogram and all this kind of thing. 
Uh, and a regulator said uh, no, which rather spoiled that particular party. So when does one need to seek regulatory approval for trade sales in the generic case, way above fintech? So I mean, it's, for us it's particularly relevant because we're authorised and regulated by the FCA. And so you know, we have to, to seek that. So the FCA has got the power to say, no, you can't sell yourself to that company you want to sell yourself to, does it? Yes, it does. Yeah. So off the top of my head, the Cedars Crowdcube thing was knocked on the head by the Monopolies and Mergers Commission or whatever yeah. it's called these days because they said, well, OK, if you merge, there's only going to be one and that's no competition. And I can see that from the competition authorities. But I wasn't aware that the FCA had the possibility to sell a company it can't sell itself. I, I don't really understand that one. Well, there's a, there's a change of control aspect. I'm sure they've granted themselves lots of power. Yeah. I mean, they've also granted themselves lots of power to tell all listed boards in this country that when they're hiring NEDs and chairmen, they need to consider what I call the in utero fetal characteristics of said person, yeah. which is rather bizarre, and I'm sure Antrevere is. Anyway, look, so that's a side issue. So from your perspective as a, um, a different podcast entirely, from your perspective as a CEO, in terms of the number of phases in this project, the final phrase is regulatory approval. And in terms of uh, Euroclear wanting to press on, as you say, and having that conversation last year, generally how long does this regulatory approval take? Because going back to the Cedars case and knowing a few people on the Cedars end of things, when everything is completely up in the air for several months, it can be quite dislocating for the sort of the, the day job of the business because everyone's wondering what their future holds or doesn't hold. So typically the process is four to six months and it, it really depends on you know, how busy the FCA is with, with other things. Go back to the, the, the Cedars case, I suspect that they, were, they probably foresaw that there would, be some, you know, there would be some issues coming up. Question to be raised. Yes, whereas I think for us, we're, because of the difference in size between us and Euroclear, and the fact that that'd be, that'd be a very positive outcome for, for customers, for, for the company in general. We, we don't foresee any issues there at all, and which has mean that, meant that whilst it's, it'll be great to get over that final hurdle in terms of actually doing business together and pressing ahead with achieving our joint goals, you know, it's pedals to the metal. Right, OK, so I'll, I'll put my soapbox to one side about uh, unelected power that's forever accumulating more power to itself. I mean, looking upwards, we have globalism, of course, which is a prime example. But going back to the commercial things, and then the final stage of a, a trade sale, or the epilogue to the trade sale, as I was talking to EcoSpend about recently, is that you go through all this process and everything's finally all lined up and you know, ink dries on the paper, and then you go, all go out and celebrate, and the next morning you wake up with a hangover and life continues. <laughs> Almost identically as it did yeah. from the day before. You've got the same number of customers, you've got the same computers and software programs and, and all this kind of stuff. And then you've got the challenge of integrating or staying at arm's length or yeah. somewhere in, in the middle and aligning cultures. So how do you see all that soft stuff, which, although what we've spoken about before, is not exactly trivial. It is in a way kind of definable as a, as a project and there's these various steps and there's a rational things you're going through. But culture is a much more nebulous thing and yeah. trying to retain creativity, entrepreneurialism or whatever other particular brands or flavours you've had as a company, once you get swallowed up by 10 tonne gorilla, it's quite a challenge all around. But equally, 10 tonne gorilla uh, doesn't want to buy a hundred little outfits around the world, all of whom are sort of busy being Indian doing their own thing. And yeah. it'd be quite nice if they sort of sing the company song occasionally. So there's probably a whole podcast around that. But just from the big picture perspective, as you're seeing it now, David, how do you, how do you see that area? I think it is very easy to think about it as, oh, it's the soft stuff, it, it doesn't matter, it'll figure itself out. But 
I think the reality is that if you don't think about it, you won't be in control of the path that you go down. And if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So the approach we took was we were, both parties were very clear about what they wanted in terms of our culture to be afterwards. And we actually wrote that into the terms of the, the transaction in terms of the degree of control we would have and some of the aspects around integration. Because one of the things Euroclear were very keen on is they wanted us to remain innovative and agile and nimble. So we've remained in our own offices. We're, we're not in, in their offices. That means that uh, we can, as much as possible, have the best of both worlds. So we, we remain, our, we remain that's, have the entrepreneurial spirit, but we have their, their, their resources and clout behind us. Interesting. Well, I think like most of these things in important relationships, not least which commercial relationships, is like all human relationships of, of importance, the most important is to have a dialogue and understanding up front about expectations. The tides and the winds always blow one off the original course, but if you start with a meeting of minds and ensure there's a process to remain coherent, that makes it so much the better. Good. Okay, so before I wrap up the show, here a little bit more about Goji. I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my band partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, David, you mentioned Goji once or twice and you've given us the, the super big picture. But just for completeness, in case any listeners out there really should be checking you out today and needing your services or products or whatever, uh, what services and products are you selling to who in which geographical territories today? So as, as I mentioned in the introduction, we provide an investment platform technology to the, the private market sector. So we typically sell to, uh, to fund administrators and other fund service providers who serve uh, the private market sector, as well as the, the asset managers and, and GPs who might be in private equity or venture capital or real estate. And by them leveraging our technology, they're able to provide a fully digital investment journey into their funds. And now that we're part of uh, Euroclear, that's uh, connected through to the, the fund settle platform. So we're able to, to help people in the private market space more efficiently distribute their products through to investors, whether they are wealth managers or private banks or, or large global custodians. And I think the great thing about being in, on the journey with Euroclear at the moment is that we're scaling rapidly. And so we have positions open in most of our teams. So please do visit our LinkedIn page to see what the open opportunities we have at the moment. Um, but we're certainly very much in the market for the, the best talent we can get. Yes, and my way of thinking about what you say, which is that uh, if you go online, it's really easy to buy a share in the New York Stock Exchange or the Tokyo Stock Exchange or a bond or something like that, although why you want to buy bonds, I don't know, at the moment. But there are areas where it's really hit hard to buy online. And I would have thought that, especially with a partner like Euroclear, I've heard of them, they're quite big. They have lots of friends around the world, lots of potential people who would really need what you've got. I mean, maybe there's local competitors and all this kind of thing. But in principle, I would assume that to a certain extent, the upside in terms of business flows through your platform and what you're doing is pretty unlimited at this stage. And they serve the largest global financial institutions in the world. And the, the big trend in the market is they can leverage firms like Euroclear for mutual funds, for, for, for stocks, equities, bonds, 
But for, for private markets, for private funds, everything is still fax and paper and post even. And so the opportunity to be able to do that in a fully digital way is, is truly transformatory. Absolutely, and I think that's a good note to end on. I mean, we started and I started by using a very neoliberal perspective about realisation, how to get money out of it and all that kind of stuff. But and that's one perspective. But another perspective is that you start a business, you and Jake are in a pub and you go, I know, we'll start Goji tomorrow, why not? Yeah, I'm not doing anything tomorrow, we'll start Goji. And that carries on and the journey carries on. As I say, the day after you're fully trade sold, the journey will carry on. But it's not just about realisation. But IPOs can often be, I mean, people say we're raising some money. Yeah, sure, but you can always raise money different ways. But it's about the best way to take your vision and your business further forward and increase it exponentially. I mean, if you floated yourself on the stock exchange instead, then you'll get money, but you're not going to suddenly get the footprint of potential customers around the world. So actually, they're you know, putting the money thing to one side. I think what's been brought home to me is to, in my mind, give more weight to the, from the board's perspective, this is the best thing to do with this business. Forget anybody putting money back in their trouser pockets. You know, this, this is the way this business needs to grow. We yeah. can't just gradually next year open an office in France and then open one in Denmark the year after and all that kind of stuff because we'll all be 257 by the time we've covered the world. So the commercial sense is very interesting. Yeah, and I think that was a, a huge driver for us. Yes, I did think it might not have failed to cross your mind uh, there, David. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for that. It's been an interesting tour d'horizon and I wish you and Goji and Euroclear every success in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. Could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye
dance with me, watch the firelight 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 dance with me, watch the firelight.